0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit
1: uctv.tv slash stemcell. There are many questions surrounding this idea of junk DNA. Is it really junk? And if it is, why there is so much of it in our genomes? Does it have a function? What does it evolution have to do with it? And what does it have to do with evolution? And maybe most importantly, does it have anything to do with dysfunction and perhaps finding cures? So today I come across the street to the Salk Institute to meet up with a couple of friends. The Salk Institute's own Rusty Gage and UC San Diego's Miles Wickinson. Rusty, Miles, and I will grapple with those questions and bring up more that are sure to arise as we dig deeper into the world of junk DNA. Miles, I'll start with you. Um, What is about junk DNA? I mean, how come our cells have so much extra DNA material inside them? Well, I I
2: think that um, actually we need to determine if that's actually true. We need to know what proportion of the genome actually is junk. Mm -hmm. So by junk, I suppose the definition for that would be DNA that is of no selective value to the the organism that has it. Um, If that's how we're defining junk... I think the big question is, what proportion of, of the genome actually is junk? Right. Um, so there's been a kind of a, a swing of, of the pendulum with regard to this. So in the, in the, especially in the 1980s, there was a, 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 a quite a bit of, of, of thought that most of the DNA was junk. And part of that came from the fact that coding portion of the genome, the portion that actually encodes proteins only represented an extremely small proportion of the genome, something like back then it was thought to be maybe less than 5%. We now know it's actually only about 1% of the human genome. Um, and so what of the rest of all this DNA do? And at that time, we didn't really know much about other things that DNA could be doing. There was a lot of speculation involved in chromosomal structure, etc. Um, but the, the idea was proposed that... A lot of this could be what's called selfish DNA. Right. This is a term that was, uh, was proposed by Richard Dawkins, uh, who had the famous book called uh, Selfish Gene. And the idea was, um, is that, well, this is kind of a stark view, but that, um, that, that cells uh, or, or organisms are, are really just a, a place for DNA to replicate itself. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a, a host. And what's really going on is the DNA is just finding ways to make more copies of itself and the organism is sort of secondary. Obviously that's not completely true, but it's one way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And a basic idea of what selfish DNA is if DNA has the ability of a piece of DNA to replicate itself, such as what we'll talk about perhaps later transposable elements, where they can leave a copy behind, they don't need to have any provide any benefit to the host they have an ability to proliferate. And, um, and, and so the idea came out that, well, maybe um, uh, a lot of the, most of this DNA is really not doing anything for the host. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the 80s, and I think that, depending on the, you know, everybody had a different point of view, but a lot of people tended to think most of the DNA was junk. And then we discovered, after the year 2000, that most of the genome is transcribed, meaning the DNA is made into a transient form called RNA, which ultimately encodes protein. And 80% or something of of the genome is transcribed. And and so then the kind of pendulum swung, and lots of people said, well, if it's transcribed, it must be doing something. Mm -hmm. I personally don't take that point of view. Um, I think that... It it takes work to prevent transcription, and you can have low-level transcription that's irrelevant um, just because it's it's actually, once you have transcriptional machinery, you're going to have all kinds of transcription occurring. And a key point is that majority of this transcription in the genome is below one copy per cell. That means there's less than one copy of the RNA per cell. So, it's in my mind hard to imagine that that is going to be uh, functionally important. It's possible, certainly, but, and so, um, so, so I think, you know, the big question is, you know, where in this continuum, you know, you know how much of this of the DNA is junk? And a, a problem with the term junk is that it suggests that, you know, you know that that is what something is and, and we've defined it and we're done. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as research continues, we're going to discover that more and more pieces yeah. of DNA actually do have a function. And so um, you know, we have to think of perhaps a good, good term mm-hmm. uh, that's a little more open. Um, there's a lot of reasons to be positive uh, and think that we're, as time goes on, we'll discover more and more functions um, for what we call the non-coding DNA. The coding DNA, I think everybody agrees, is generally functional, not necessarily all of it, but most of it but this non coding part of the genome, which is in the humans ninety nine percent of the genome, and I'll just say one last thing in terms of the idea that yes, we will discover functions not clearly uh, for a lot of these things, but um, you know what percentage of these things are we going to find functions for well now there's a, I just looked this up there is a plant called a uh, uh, a, a bladder worst, <laughs> and uh, I guess it lives in uh, very wet sort of areas, and it, 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 it has um, 97% of its genome is coding. Only 3% is mm-hmm. non-coding. So that says that in a simpler organism that's presumably simpler than us, um, that it, you know, you don't need much non-coding DNA. We have 99% non-coding They have 3%. Now, you can argue that's because we're so advanced. We need the non-coding DNA. Okay, fair enough. But then, if you look at, say, salamanders and lilies, two very different kinds of organisms, they both have about 10 to 20 times more DNA than we do. And I think most people would argue that they're not more advanced than us. Mm -hmm. Lily's a nice flower. Salamander's an interesting reptile. They have, so, you know, I think you really have to question, you know, how much of this non coding RNA is really going to be, in the end, uh, functional. Uh, I'm, I'm certain a lot of it will be, and it's going to be interesting to find out.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm not expecting us to solve this issue now, but uh, I'm turning to Rusty now, trying to explain, I mean, how come that this much of DNA accumulates in the cells? And part of that is uh, through this uh, mechanism of jumping genes or retrotransposons. Um, Can you explain, Rusty, I mean, how the cells accumulate DNA over time?
0: Well, let's go back to single-cell organisms during evolution where where they had a very great way of protecting their genome. It was was these these gene-editing systems that are now popular, called CRISPR-Cas9, for example, that we use experimentally to cleave out parts of the genome or put in new pieces. Well, single-cell bacteria that had these kinds of systems used that to protect themselves from invaders. So they kept their genomes pretty tight. And uh, at, at one point in evolution, these uh, single cell organisms changed and the, and the editing systems were mutated. And once they were mutated, the genome started expanding because the, mobile, the mobility, you know, either viruses coming in or making copies of themselves expanded. And that was, some people think of as the beginning of the expansion of the genome. And it was in, it was in part because there was no editing system to prevent it. You know, fast forward to mammalian systems, and we still have these mobile elements that are moving around in the genome. And we've actually, um, or mammals uh, and plants, have developed a lot of uh, mechanisms to control this mobility and most often to shut it down, but um, not always. And also in very, very uh programmed ways so that it allows for mobility to occur at certain times during development, for example, and then it's shut down very tightly. So we have these elements that exist within our genome. And and in fact, um, it's estimated the human genome now that uh, something close to 50% of the genome is made up of the residuals of these mobile elements that started a long time ago. They're not all still active now by any stretch of the imagination but there are elements that are still active but some of the elements that were active in early species or early parts of evolution are still hanging around they've been mutated such that they're not able to move anymore but their genome sequence has has been adapted or co-adapted for other purposes and there are examples of what are called human endogenous retroviruses is a HERV, they're called, that um, were active early on in, in evolution, became silent. Uh, and yet, when, you, when, when we began to map out in the genome parts of the DNA which are involved in regulating the expression of this protein coding sequences that Miles was talking about, it turns out that these HERV, pieces of these HERVs, are often uh, intimately involved with uh, regulation, they're, they're called enhancers. They have elements of enhancers within them. And so one imagines, and, we, we are, and stories are emerging now where a, a herb jumped into a location at some point during primate evolution and played a role in regulating the expression of a gene that was downstream. Now because these herbs are, are like mobile elements, they have a lot of repetitive sequences in them and that makes them a little more vulnerable to mutation, a HERV could have jumped in at a, at a species before it split, for example, before we split from chimp and human, and it's carried in both, but then a subsequent mutation in that HERV would have changed the ex- re- expression of this gene downstream in both cases. So there's a case where we have mobile elements perhaps falling in the range of junk playing a role so, you know, by chance, by where they landed, played a role in gene expression, but then by virtue of the features of the DNA, they are subsequently involved in the evolution of the expression of proteins. Right. So while I think it's true that uh, there is probably lots of DNA for which we don't understand its function currently, um, this is a great time in biology for looking at an evolutionary perspective and finding out when events occurred and what role they may have played early in, in evolution, and that subsequently they may be, in fact, non-functioning now, but they had a function at some point, and now they have less of a function, or vice versa, where they, they had no function previously, and by virtue of where they are now, or some mutation that occurred and they have function. You know, overall... You know, there are two driving forces in evolution. One is we, we think of selection. We always put the pressure on, on selection. But the other feature is is diversity. Mm-hmm. We, in order for a species to persist, there needs to be, it's an evolutionary process by which diversity occurs and then selection occurs on that to adapt to whatever that environment or that organism living in. And perhaps this the mechanisms that are generating or the junk DNA itself is a template of on which diversity can act without disturbing the ongoing processes. So you need this flexibility, you need this variability in the genome on which to select based on the environmental circumstances that you have at the, at that, for that time for that
1: species. Mm-hmm. I think um, you gave like awesome examples of how this uh, mobilization of those elements provide a fertile soil for evolution to act. And uh, this is becoming more and more clear with more examples like that. But you and I, we go back to the early 2000s where we figured out that one of those uh, retrotransposons are highly active in the brain. And um, so was that the, like a big surprise uh, for you to realize that these are actually active, still active in, in individuals? Yes, <laughs> <It was> a, <laughs> for me too. <laughs> this was a,
0: it was a great time for us uh, during the realization that this was happening. I think from from a personal perspective, I have been working and had an interest in retroviruses per se as tools for um, gene delivery, mm-hmm. and so the the features and the structure of the retrovirus was was. Uh, was fertile ground for investigation for me. I think I knew less and paid less attention to the line elements per se at the time, but when you look at the structure and see that they have a lot of these common features, um, I think that was one of the attracting, attractive parts. I felt comfortable in, in that DNA sequence. That they were active in in, uh, in early neural progenitor cells or when, just before they became neurons was was a surprise, not just for us, but for the whole community, because the the only place where it was thought to occur was in germ cells previously. So we, we met with a certain amount of resistance until others were able to replicate it using, you know, analogous tools and things like that. But it's still, um, I think there's a, been a focus now, the realization that the features of these, these particular mobile elements requires that the nuclear membrane is broken down for them to get back into the DNA and insert themselves. And there are more and more studies showing how they may play a role in cancers in particular. Um, but I think um, that's been going on since Hay-Kazazian's first studies with line elements in cancer. Mm-hmm. I think the interesting line now is what role they might be playing in that natural behavior or in development during development, what role they play in generating diversity uh, subsequently in behavioral changes that occur.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, while uh, somatic neuroprogenitor cells might be loose in the control of those uh, jumping genes, uh, the germ cells are quite uh, strict about their mobilization, right? Ooh. So, uh, Miles, you also work on Factors that uh, inhibit the activity of these retrotransposons. So, what what happens if you don't have those factors in the germline?
2: I actually could I uh, also respond to what uh, Rusty yeah, was yeah, talking yeah. about, and then I'll get to the germline okay. in a minute. Okay. So, I so I agree that um, selection, you know, is a key tenet of, of, of evolutionary biology. But but uh, but you know, in the in the eighties, there was a kind of a shift in thinking that selection doesn't always need to operate on And individuals in a species, right? It can also operate within a cell, absolutely. And so, you know, this gets now back to these these pieces of DNA that are able to replicate themselves. Mm -hmm. And and basically, you have competition between different replicators in the genome, and 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 whoever can replicate more can win (laughs) out, right? And so. The, in, in, in your case the, uh, the these jumping line elements that, that I guess are jumping at increased frequency in neural progenitors, I think it's very exciting, I, I agree, but I guess the question is, is that because um, it, it is doing something functionally important, or is that because neural cells are allowing for it because the, the key thing with, with with jumping genes is you know we 'll talk about germline in a minute mm-hmm. but you know, the germline is critical because, you know, these things are going to get passed on, and, right. and when they jump to a new spot, they're going to create mutations, which usually probably have no negative effect, but sometimes they will if they jump in the middle of a gene. But, this, but, but perhaps in neurons, you know, just to take the devil's advocate mm-hmm. position, um, it, it, you know, it doesn't bother them too much. There's not enough selection pressure against it, and so that's why it occurs. Now, for it to be functional, from my very naive point of view, it seems like it would be preferable if there was some selectivity to their jumping not not you know absolute selectivity you could still have diversity as you said but some kind of selectivity because if it seems if it's completely random it's hard for me to understand how that would be functionally useful for the organism mm-hmm.
0: it, yeah no i i think those are all good points i think just to take up this point that you're raising with regards to Randomness, right? Um, I, don't, this, I don't think this is a diversion because it's, I think it's, it's we'll at the heart. of it's, it's, it's the heart of,
2: of the issue. No, it's, of, it's a fun topic because yeah. you, you published a, yeah, both yeah, of you yeah. published a lot of nice things. So in this area.
0: Um, we think of randomness. Uh, when you think of randomness, you think that all options are open if something is fully random. But another way to think of, of genomic randomness is randomness with constraints. Mm -hmm. That means that there's certain features of randomness that are, that are, that, certain features of an activity that limit its mm-hmm. full randomness. So Maybe for less, example,
2: less randomness,
0: less randomness or yeah. control randomness. Control so, randomness that, yeah. so you, we know, for example, that, uh, the chromatin is likely needs to be open, mm-hmm. you know, so it, if it's open, then it's likely to be active.
2: Right. So that reduces that the re- number of target re- sites. That reduces way. the targets yeah.
0: uh, significantly. Um, there's a significant amount of work on right now in the hemopoietic field about, uh, whether or not certain areas of the genome are more vulnerable to damage than other areas, mm-hmm. and uh, it may turn out that in addition to these structural constraints like open chromatin or other features like active activity, mm-hmm. uh, there may be even you know features about the genome that Reduce the number of targets that actually are there, so there may be more targeting yeah. this this we'll have to see, but this yeah. is with but it it is beginning to be reduced, so maybe maybe to answer that will take another ten years to see what is the relative thing. Mm-hmm. but I, I, another way to look at it is that when we talk about function i would I would include within the domain of things that are function just generating diversity, so if especially in a neuron. So if you have a neural progenitor cell that's not going to be carried on to the germline, that it's open for business, (laughs) mobility can occur at a certain stage, it generates on a single cell basis, a mosaic basis, diversity within that cell. Mm -hmm. Given the fact that most cells, after they differentiate into a neuron, never divide again. So you have that same cell Mm -hmm. in your brain for the the lifetime of of that cell You're not concerned so much about replication and addition, but what you've added is an element of diversity within each individual cell that that adds that expanded capacity of the cell to function. And in a theoretical sense, this would also add to the individual differences that exist between people. So when you have things like identical twins with exactly, quote, exactly the same genome, they may not actually be exactly the same genome. Hmm. If there are these events that are happening that make them somewhat different later on, this is an argument, or this is a, mm-hmm. a discussion about mm-hmm. about these sorts of things.
2: So, Rusty, if so, if um, if it was beneficial to have this um, uh, this mosaicism, in mm-hmm. the, or mm-hmm. that's too fancy a term, but you know, yeah. uh, uh, individual differences in different neurons with different elements jumping in different places in different mm-hmm. neurons. Ultimately, for that to be of selective value, we would need to have more babies as a result of it, right? I mean, that's how selection works, right? If you, if it's something that gets passed on, you're more likely to have children and pass on that ability. So, would that is it? Do you see it as, as being somehow? Yeah,
0: I I think it's not it's not where they're jumping that makes the that we're talking about. We're talking about the mechanism that allows the jumping to occur. Mm-hmm and not necessarily specifying exactly where they go. So that there may be features like uh, methylation or marks on the DNA that have some regulatory control about how much can happen in one cell or one individual. That could be passed on genetically. So, or or, or some other genetic mutation where the the enhancer on that element is not bound as tightly because of some mutation that is inherent in that family. So I don't think where they land has to be passed on, but the mechanism by which that allows them to to move.
2: But I'm just frankly having trouble understanding how um, elements that are jumping somewhat randomly are going to somehow, over a long period of time, lead to, you know, more likely to have children, because ultimately that's how genes... Take over, right?
1: Let, let me try yeah. to do an analogy with the okay. immune system. And yeah. I know it's not right. perfect. Right. But, uh, so, the immune system provides all this level of uh, diversity and variability mm. and have the VDJ uh, mm-hmm. locus where this recombination happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, uh, but uh, it, it is the selection is not at the level of uh, the individual, the recombinations that you have and I don't, or the diversity of your immune system. But we are selecting for individuals who carry that mechanism mm-hmm. to be able to do that. If now uh, we have individuals without that mechanism, they will probably not survive. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I mean, I know it's not the perfect analogy, but I think um, the lessons from the immune system might tell us that I mean, the pressure is on the mechanism. No? And, and to that, that example, has
2: immediate value right. because, because you're basically providing T-cell and B-cell-mediated immunity. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, you know, you essentially have AIDS or worse, and and you die. But but I don't know what the negative effect of not having jumping exactly. genes and neurons. I would
0: think be. you've really hit the hit the yeah. nail on the head there. And <laughs> this is a new field yeah. of endeavor, and the deletion experiments are just currently underway. So that means how how do you what happens if you suppress line mm-hmm. activity yeah. or delete that activity through some mechanistic studies? And I think those need to be done to address your mm-hmm. your question. But I, and I think part of the problem there is there's so many active elements right. that um, it makes this experiment a little more difficult to do. And it's interesting to note that we often will then talk about it in terms of humans, but really we go to our animal experiments to do the experiment to see what happens, and whereas we, we believe, for example, that humans have about 150 active elements mm-hmm. that are still relatively active in, their, in, in our genomes. The mouse has 3,000. Right, <laughs> so, I know. You know so.
2: This is a case where humans would be a better subject. <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah. exactly. So, but I can tell you those experiments are underway. Well,
2: again, if there's selectivity to it, as you said, yeah you know, there's some uh, constraints that I could really see how it could be of selective advantage. But one
1: thing that um, uh, I think it's it's another argument uh, on another piece of evidence is the fact that when you knock out or you remove the factors that controls retrotransposition or mobilization, you have a dramatic effect. Mm. On development, yeah. On development, yeah. So... um, and, and, and sometimes for, for neurological, uh, right, uh, right. For, for the neural part as well, neurological problems. So, those animals in experimental models, they show neurological deficits. Right. So, there is something there, but I agree with Rust. I mean, these are, um, uh, it's an early topic. We are taking advantage of these new tools in molecular biology to really manipulate the genome in a ways to answer those questions more precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's go back to the okay. germ cells. <laughs> it's, going to be very,
2: it's going to be very exciting, actually. I'm looking is, forward to it. It is. It is it's so true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and just mapping, for example, where those sites are, where, exactly. they're, where they're jumping, yeah. is going to be, which is hard, I know. It's very difficult. And it might be the, different, different brain regions. Yes, of course, different brain yeah. regions. Yeah, going to the germline. Um, so, well, I think it's, it, the way I look at it, and it may be very naive, but uh, it's, it's sort of a, a dynamic uh, balance. So, on one hand, um, the... Uh, transposable elements are are, are, are jumping, and, mm-hmm. and also not just jumping, but sometimes just being expressed, mm-hmm. which can cause deleterious effects to germ lines direct the germline directly, these germ cells that give rise to the next generation. Um, as you said, there's evolutionary benefit to have the diversity caused by these things jumping. But there's really no selective value in that. I mean, evolution doesn't look into the future. Exactly. It just, the, 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 this is just raw material that is useful later on, but it's not purposeful. Right. right. And so, really, I think most of the effort has been in the, in the germline to suppress the jumping. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not perfect, which is good, because then that allows a little bit of jumping to provide a little bit of diversity. And so it's sort of a balance. And there's all kinds of mechanisms, including... A large part of the, or a small part anyway, of the non-coding RNAs, uh, pi RNAs, mm-hmm. as they're called, mm-hmm. are uh, uh, clearly important in suppressing uh, the jumping of, yeah. of some of these genes. Another thing is a chemical modification we're all familiar with that occurs on DNA methylation. Yep. And that also suppresses uh, uh, the jumping of these elements. But there are two times during development When there's genome-wide demethylation, the methylation group is removed, both during gamete generation, but also in the early embryo, and I wouldn't say it's completely removed, but about 90%. It's very, very dramatic, and when you demethylate, you open up (laughs) the DNA to be transcribed, including these often nasty, <laughs> <laughs> uh, selfish DNA jumping genes, right? And so, you know, so, but, it, but it's a balance. And so that's why there's a lot of mechanisms to try to suppress it. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. It's interesting. Uh, I, I was thinking about this, that some of the mechanisms that are used to regulate other parts of the genome uh, likely emerged. Initially, to suppress l- these mobile elements, and then they were exapted or, or taken, their function was taken. Methylation is a really mm. good example yeah. of this, mm. or methylation is used to suppress genome or other kinds of epigenetic marks, or mm-hmm. used to regulate gene expression, and, and likely early on on these mobile elements to, to silence or regulate their activity, and then this was exapted for other purposes.
1: And well, now we make use of it, right. Right. it right. Use of That's it. right? That's right. <laughs> And uh, it, it is uh, interesting to to go back to this, um the early stages of the cells, right when the DNA start to expand, uh, but there is a point where they, 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 they need to restrict that, mm-hmm. and that 's when these factors in the cell learn that probably is not uh, advantage to the cells to just let them grow mm-hmm. um, i don 't know if I have any example of uh, a mechanism where the genome is expanding still expanding. Um, uh, in a geological time where we can actually see that, I don't know if there is any examples of that, because that would be an interesting species to study um, mm. how to, this turn, to see how, it adapts how to they all adapt how they adapt really. Yeah. yeah, I tend to think that this is all about energy. There is a time where the cell said, "Well, I cannot spend all my energy trying to replicate DNA. We need to restrict this." Right. right. And I mean. Selection was to favor the uh, elements that will control the the jumping genes.
2: Yeah, there's a gentleman named John Maddock. I think he's in, is he still in Australia. I'm not I sure. Think so. He's an Australian anyway. And you know, and he shows this this chart of of, of um, complexity and uh, versus non-coding RNA. And basically, as you go to a more complex organisms, there's more more non-coding yep. RNA. Um, and, and And generally, I believe his theme has has been that that sh- suggests that the non coding RNA must be doing something really important for these higher organisms mm-hmm. um, but but an alternative view is just that the the higher organisms are able to put up with it more <laughs> right and then that kind of comes with what you 're saying so bacteria, depending on the species, divide every twenty minutes it can't afford right. uh, a, a lot of of, 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 of Unnecessary stuff, junk DNA, and and so uh, they have very streamlined genomes. But the way I think of bacteria as um, you know um, species that never went to college, <laughs> you know they have reduced options. Right. But they're also going to survive a you know, nuclear warhead or something like that. A lot, and at least some of them will. But they have less options because they don't have so much of this what we'll call junk DNA, which, as Rusty and I have said, can generate so many things for the future. It may not be useful initially, but ultimately. Whereas we have, in my opinion, a lot of uh, superfluous stuff that isn't doing anything, but it doesn't mean it won't be useful later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Was there like an example uh, some time ago on, on the cockroach genome that is so big and so large that why it can be protected or so resistant to several environmental factors I think there's a recent paper on yeah that. I
0: can't remember I think you're right yeah right It's a cockroach yeah. yeah
2: right and so and so that may be true but I guess the question is was that selected for that purpose no
1: is that exactly why, right you know yeah. yeah but there are these early um, hypotheses that uh, the junk DNA is all about protection right I mean it covers the important mm-hmm. pieces of DNA and once you have a mutation by sunlight, but whatever environmental factor, it goes to this part that can afford to be
2: mutated. Mm-hmm. That's right, but but
1: not on the protein coding it, genes it, or the most relevant genes.
2: Yeah, in fact, investigators, I think even back in the '60s, way before my time, and the '70s, including Ono, a uh, famous evolutionary biologist, you know, predicted um, that you couldn't have more than about thirty thousand genetic loci or pieces of important genetic information in the genome, because the mutational load would be too high. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of held up, at least in terms of coding genes.
0: Right. Coding because, because,
2: you know, it's nice to have all that extra DNA to, to hit. Because let's to face absorb- it, most mutations, even in coding regions, are probably neutral. Yeah. Might, you know, I, I figured neutral is number one, number two is bad, and then occasionally it's a good mutation. It's mm-hmm. actually helpful.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But when you have millions and billions of years... To work with, ultimately the good guys get selected.
1: Right. Okay. I think we uh, are ending our discussion here. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Miles. I think this is a very helpful discussion.
2: Thanks.